Welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. This season of Water for Fighting is sponsored by Sea and Shoreline. Sea and Shoreline is a Florida-based aquatic restoration firm that is on a mission to restore Florida's water bodies and protect our coastline communities against severe storms. You can check out their projects at seaandshoreline.com. The season is also brought to you by Resource Environmental Solutions. RES is a national leader in ecological and hydrological restoration, offering nature-based solutions with guaranteed performance through innovative delivery options. Discover more about their work and commitment to Florida and its environmental challenges by visiting www.res.us. More about these good folks a little bit later. As advertised, we're continuing to broaden our horizons a little bit more this season, and today's guest fits right into that philosophy. I'm so excited to be joined by a former member of the Florida House of Representatives and the founder, managing director, and senior advisor for Saunders, Ralston, and Dantzler, Dean Saunders. Dean served in the Florida House for two terms between 1992 and 1996, where he was instrumental in the creation of legislation that served as the foundation for the development and expansion of conservation easement programs here in the state of Florida. Since then, he has brokered some of the most consequential conservation purchases ever made in the state of Florida. Dean, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's good to see you. Yeah, good to be here. Let's start at the very beginning. You and I talked for a few minutes before I got here, and you said that you're an eighth generation Floridian. Is that is that right? That is correct. So tell me about your parents then, I guess, and their parents and parents and parents. <laughs> <laughs> so my parents, my dad, the Saunders side, were really cracker conks. <laughs> we actually the Saunders helped found the Bahamas in the sixteen sixteen forty nine when the Lutheran adventurers left the Bermuda and went to the Bahamas. Hmm. And then from the Bahamas they made it to Key West in about eighteen between eighteen forty five and eighteen forty seven. And then migrated up the coast mm-hmm. and then settled in the Dunedin area, a um, little community called Curlew, settled by the Saunders, and then by ultimately my other side of my dad's side of the family, the Suttons and Beckton's and mm-hmm. a whole bunch of names over there. Uh, and my great-great-grandfather founded the Curlew Methodist Church, which at the time was the second oldest church in what was then Hillsborough County. Wow. So and now, of course, it's Pinellas County. Right. I was going to I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then my mom, she came from Michigan. She was adopted. And so her, her adoptive mother moved to Dunedin. And that's how she met my dad. My mother, actually, her biological father is Native American. He was in Ottawa, I think Ottawa and Chippewa hmm. uh, from Michigan. And, okay. Um, so I've actually located her half brother. She never knew. She had, and he never knew he had a half sister. Wow! Until about a year ago. Really? So, wow! Yeah, or that two is, years ago. That is recent. Yeah. So is that the? Uh, I had a friend who calls them, I guess, Upers. Are they the Upers, the ones that are in the, the north side of Michigan, or is it a different part of Michigan that? Well, that they, from? well, no, they were not part of the uh, Upper Peninsula. But good catch. I mean, there were there are several bands of the Ottawa. And I think it's the Little River Band that. Okay. My folks were part of. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So then. Let's go back to you're now here in Florida. Your parents, when, where, where were you born? So I was born in Claremont. Okay. And which is much different than now than it was when you were born there. True. But what were you like as a kid? What did you like doing? What did your, what did your dad do for a living? Uh, so my dad managed some groves for the Artie Keene family, a big 
citrus growing family out of Orlando, and he managed about 4,000 acres of their groves, and a lot of them were in and around Claremont. Mm. Had he always done that from when you were in, in Dunedin? To so, so, dad, so dad went to the University of Florida, majored in citrus, and then he actually moved to Lakeland. He was working for the Soil Science Foundation here in Lakeland, and then he got a job with Mr. Keene to be the manager of his citrus groves, and so he moved to Claremont. So did you grow up in the groves with your, your dad? Oh, yeah, yeah. So and so you asked me what I did as a kid. I mean, as a little kid, I mean, fishing, swimming in the lakes, playing baseball. When I was 13, I started working in the Orange Coast. I remember it was uh, Easter break was coming up, and it was um, – so we had Thursday, Friday, and Monday off for Easter. I mean, mm-hmm. back then you could still call it Easter break. <laughs> well, now we call it spring break. And I remember it was a Wednesday evening, and Dad said, oh, by the way, you're going to start working in the morning, so you need to make a lunch tonight. He said, and we'll leave the house about 6.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. I did that for till I was, till I, actually, till I graduated from college. I would come mm-hmm. home in the summers, and I'd work in the orange groves. So, you know, I started working 10-hour days sure. in, in vacations and summer and whatnot. But it's interesting. I mean, you have people that have different stories, and some folks you know, intentionally avoid you know, the things that their fathers did before them or their mothers did before them. And I didn't want to assume, like, you're one of the most significant land brokers in the entire state, probably the southeast. And so I didn't want to assume that, hey, just because you're just because you're buying and selling doesn't mean that you're necessarily it's it's part of who you are. But it sounds like it, it is and has been. Well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, so my my grandfather was a commercial fisherman. And so my dad's father, the Saunders side, mm-hmm. we've ever since we came from the Bahamas, I mean, we were either farmers or fishermen, right? And mostly fishermen. But my dad went on the agricultural side, but I, I sort of wanted to be a next, the next Jacques Cousteau, you know, at the time I wanted to be a marine biologist, but later realized that there weren't that many jobs at the time <laughs> in that right. field. And so I migrated into majoring in citrus and agriculture and thought I would be, I'd always enjoyed sales. And I can remember when I was, eight or nine my dad was a great grove manager but sales was not one of his things and the rotary club was having pancake supper and they had tickets mm-hmm. right to sell so i took my dad's tickets and i walked all over claremont selling pancake supper tickets and he was the top salesman wow uh, so he sold the most tickets and it was actually me that had sold them and he got a little black and white eight inch black and white tv as his prize for selling the most tickets and he gave it to me i enjoyed Mm -hmm. the sales i enjoyed getting around meeting with people and talking to people and you know here comes dean again you know (laughs) what are you selling now dean you know right (laughs) what what do you attribute that to is it that that persistence or were you always an extrovert is that kind of your your thing i yeah i just think you know yeah i was i you know enjoyed people and i enjoyed sales Mm -hmm. i mean it was a just something to do. I don't know. I yeah. just liked it. And so I always thought I'd probably end up in fertilizer sale or chem- chemical sales or something. Mm-hmm. I was really thinking more national chemical companies at the time, mm-hmm. ag chemicals. But when I graduated in 82 was a farm recession. Now, the country in general was doing okay, but the farm community was not. And so I ended up going to work for Golden Gem Citrus Growers and I know that one of your next questions is going to be, well, how did I get to working for Lawton Childs? Yeah. And so just to go to that story, I, I came home from work one day, and I'd, I'd been at Golden Gym for about 
three months. Is this after college that you're talking about? This is after college. Okay. After, you know, so 1983. My dad says, hey, you got this guy called. His name is Charles Kennedy. He says he's administrative assistant to Lawton Childs. Hmm. He called. And I said, well, okay, do you have his number, Dad? I can return his phone call. No, he just said he'd call you in the morning. <laughs> I said, oh, Dad, what? So, sure enough, at 6 o'clock in the morning, uh, he called me. I was already at the Golden Gym offices, and he mm-hmm. just said, Dean, I know you're at work, and you probably can't talk, so just listen. He said, I'm Charles Kennedy, administrative assistant at U.S. Senator Lawton Childs, and the senator would like to hire somebody to work agricultural issues for him. He's looking for a cracker with a background in agriculture, preferably in citrus, who mm-hmm. enjoys politics. You were referred to us by the University of Florida. Would huh. you be interested in discussing this with us? And I said, yes, sir, I would. And I went down to Lakeland that night, interviewed, and two weeks later I was working for Lawton Childs. Wow. So that's what brought me to Lakeland. Okay. It, it, so, I mean, you, you, you glossed over a little bit, but you mentioned you were, you were referred by the University of Florida, but you actually went to University of Florida. Correct. And so while I was at Florida, I was very active in student government in my fraternity. I was a member of Alpha Gamma Rho fraternity and uh, was president of, of AGR. And I was president of the student senate while I was there and member of Florida Blue Key and right. all the kinds of things that one does to be in leadership positions, mm-hmm. never thinking that I would ever use that in, in any political fashion after school, but... Yeah, that's that's the part I was curious about. Is the University of Florida even you know even in the eighties? It's an enormous school now, and but it's always been you know a big school in Florida. And so they said ran, randomly call Dean Saunders, or you ask the uh, the president of the university, like oh you need to call this kid Dean Saunders. Yeah. Uh, so so you they your... reached they reached out to the lobbyists for IFAS Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. Hey, who we're looking for somebody, and you know have you all got somebody that you would recommend, mm-hmm. and so there they recommended me right so then i mean let's talk about then your time while he was senator lawton childs what did what did you do for him how did that work were you based out of lakeland i assume the entire time so so we were headquartered in in lakeland and i was here so i was working administrative kind of issues Mm -hmm. mostly but he wanted me to be my title was agricultural liaison i went to meetings for Florida Citrus Mutual or the dairy farmers or the actually the sugar growers had a uh, an association at the time they don't anymore it's been disbanded mm-hmm. or the cattlemen's meetings or farm bureau meetings peanut association meetings I mean I, I, busy is what you were nurserymen and growers association all of the agricultural groups in the state I got to know the leadership of those organizations and that's what the senator wanted me to do. He mm-hmm. wanted me to be out and meeting with those folks so they knew they had an advocate and a voice in Washington for their needs. And so that's really what I did. And then at some point, Mr. Kennedy came to me and said, okay, we want to, we would also like for you, in addition to doing the work that you're doing on, with the agriculture community, we would like for you to travel with the senator, advance his trips, mm-hmm. do the follow-up, and conduct town hall meetings on a regular basis in a 20-county district. So I was the, quote, not only the agricultural liaison, but then they called it, I think, Central Florida District Assistant. Okay. Um, so when the senator was in the, any, any of my counties, I'd pick him up at the airport. We'd, I'd advance the trips and 
that kind of thing. At that point, I mean, you're working for who would become probably one of the most famous, if not the most famous, politicians from Florida, at least in the, in the modern era. But did you consider yourself getting deeper into the political side of, of thinking at that point? Or do you still think of yourself as an ag person, an ag liaison, a person that wanted to work around those issues? No, I saw myself the latter. Really more, I was still an ag guy. I was, I'm working for the senator. Mm-hmm. And I was very loyal to him, worked hard for him on his behalf, and did what he asked me to do, mm-hmm. right, and represented his interests. But at the same time, I was an advocate for the agriculture community. And he knew it. They knew it. But I never really thought of me in that light, right? Of, right. That just wasn't my particular interest at the time. I was interested in doing a good job mm-hmm. and really being an advocate for agriculture. That sounds great. Talk about that transition then from Senator Childs to Governor Childs and then how you fit into that picture. So you asked me earlier, was I always in Lakeland? And and I was always in Lakeland, but I had an interlude. The Farm Bureau, Florida Farm Bureau Federation hired me. And so I took a year off from service with Senator Childs um, to work for Florida Farm Bureau in Gainesville, mm-hmm. uh, which was where our oldest daughter was born. Okay. And so I wor- did ag issues again for Farm Bureau, more national sort of issues. Mm-hmm. I did some state lobbying. And then w- in 1986, when the Democrats took control of the Senate again, Lawton became chairman of the Budget Committee. Mm-hmm. And he called me shortly after that and said, Dean, I'd like for you to consider coming back. Actually, we had dinner. And um, he said, I'd like for you to come back to work for me. I'd like for you to come to Washington and handle ag issues for me. I'll have more money. I can pay you out of the budget committee, go on staff and whatnot. And I said, well, I said, Senator, let me think about it and pray about it, visit with my wife about it. And I came back about a week later and I said, as much as I would find the opportunity exciting and to work for you again would be phenomenal, I just don't want my opportunities to be in Washington because I know if I move to Washington, future opportunities will be there. Mm -hmm. And we really want to live in Florida. Hmm. We love our state. We don't want to be that far away from our parents. And I now have a daughter to consider. Right. So he said, okay, well, how about if we just let you work out of the Lakeland office and you fly up? to D.C. to do the work you need about once once a month. And he said, but listen, if if I make this trade-off with you, you're going to have to travel with me again. <laughs> so, but, so that's what we did. Okay. Yeah. And then so what what year was that when when he when he took over that committee and, and asked you to come back? That was in 1986, right after the election. So I came back and I was on staff. So 87. So then he decided... He decided not to run for re-election. He was up for re-election in 1988, but he made the decision, actually on Pearl Harbor Day, not to run for re-election in the Senate hmm. a year in advance. So he made it in, in 1987 that he wasn't going to run. Hmm. So And so I approached him and I said, well, I'd gotten my real estate license when I was a senior in college. And so I said, would you all consider cutting my hours in half and my pay in half and let me see if I can't make a living with this real estate license. Because the growth market was really on fire. Hmm. And I knew citrus. I mean, I majored in citrus in school. I knew orange grows. My dad, I worked in them. 
you know, mm-hmm. since I was 13 years old, understood it, liked it. And there was demand because of all the freezes of the 80s, the early 80s, the 81 freeze, 82 freeze, 83 freeze, 85 freeze, mm. all created a huge demand for orange groves south of Polk County, mm-hmm. in Polk County and south. It's kind of south of I-4. Sure. And for land to plant groves. So they agreed, and I was able to make a deal that replaced my entire salary that I lost. And then the day after we closed the office, I got a deal done that replaced my entire year's salary. <laughs> and so I never looked backwards. Wow. I just thought, you know, this is God's you know, providential hand here directing me. Mm-hmm. I never would have ever imagined that I would be selling real estate. It wasn't like something I said, oh, wow, I just want to go sell agricultural real estate when I when I grow up. Never <laughs> thought that in my wildest imaginations. And I remember my mom saying, you're going to sell real estate? We put you through college for that? <laughs> and to which I would say, Mom, remember, I paid for half of my college. That's why I worked in those groves. I paid right. paid for half my college. So, yeah. Did that make you better? I mean, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you can't throw a rock without hitting a real estate agent. But, but... <laughs> Your history, though, in your education, your experience, your dealing with the folks, not just from University of Florida in your education, but with the the work that you did for Senator Trials, it had oh, to have been absolutely. invaluable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, so then not only was it just Senator Childs, but then you know, when he ran for governor, I suspended my real estate practice and went and helped him. I call, and when, when the day the announcement was made, I called him. And said, I'll see you in the morning. <laughs> and so I loaded up my little Bronco, too, and brought my computer and some clothes and went to Tallahassee. It was a little chaotic at mm-hmm. the time, the campaign, as most campaigns are. Nobody was raising money. Mm-hmm. But because I had been on the Senate staff, I knew so many of his friends and contacts around the state. So I just started, I got on the phone and just started putting together events to raise money to bring him into town. And so... Just started raising the money. So I raised the money for him in the campaign, and then I stayed on staff with him and then ran for the legislature myself. But all of those experiences put me where I was able to develop relationships with agricultural people all across the state and in various forms, from dairymen to nurserymen to peanut farmers to citrus growers and tropical Fish farmers, right. strawberry growers, I mean, fern growers, you name it, the gamut of Florida agriculture. I had met and got to know a lot of that leadership. Hmm. And so when I ultimately got out of the legislature, I was, what am I going to do now? And said, well, who do I know? Well, I know all these leaders in the agriculture community. I love selling land. You know, I'm going to create a firm and we'll start focusing on agricultural real estate. Hmm. I want to take just a moment to talk about my friends at Res. Florida is a treasure trove of natural wonders, but the cost of that treasure is our collective responsibility to restore and protect its ecological and water resources. That's where my friends at Res, the nation's leader in ecological and hydrological restoration, are at their best. With an extensive Florida-based team, Res provides top-notch, nature-based solutions that uplift Florida's ecosystems and the communities that rely on them. From water quality to hydrological restoration, wetland mitigation to coastal resilience, RES addresses the complex challenges facing our state with our unique operating model of taking full responsibility 
for their project's performance over time. Working with both the public and private sectors, RES is tackling the issues affecting Florida's water and land resources the most. Their long-term, cost-effective, and sustainable projects rehabilitate impaired ecosystems, helping them do the work nature intended. Cleansing water, sheltering wildlife, buffering storms, and sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. Join RES on their mission to restore and uplift Florida's ecosystems. Visit www.res.us to learn more about RES and their commitment to creating a resilient future for Florida. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Well, let's talk about that that transition. So you you go from being, as you say, super loyal to to Senator Childs and then Governor Childs. At what point? Because you you were elected to office, I think is nineteen ninety two. Is that right? The, That's correct. And so some sometime between nineteen eighty eight and nineteen ninety two, something in your mind changed and said, I, "I need to go do this." Why did you want to go do that? You know, that's a that's a good question. I'm not sure I can really answer that. You know, I just I enjoyed the public policy process. Mm. You know, I'd been working for Governor Childs at the time for almost a year and a half or so. And Quillian Yancey, who is a state senator from Lakeland, um, decided he was going to retire. He'd had enough. He was full of it, and he was going to retire. Well, that was going to create an opening for his Senate seat. And so I thought, you know, Maybe I'll run for that Senate seat. Polk County is where I am. I'm I'm involved in this now. I, I like it. I'm I, maybe I want to try my hand at it. Mm-hmm. So I approached the governor and said, "I'm thinking about this." And he said, "Well, then you need to get down to Polk County, and you need to go bounce around and see what folks are saying. You need to go meet with some of the leaders down there and assess this situation." Mm-hmm. So I did, and. It was a reapportionment year, and so the reapportioning the House and the Senate. But I, I came to the conclusion that there were others, Fred Jones being one of them, that were also considering running for the Senate seat. Fred had been in the House, who was a veteran of the House for 24 years, wow. from Auburndale. I thought my chances probably weren't all that good to take on that sort of a challenge, but, and he ultimately decided not to run. But everywhere I went, people I met said, yeah, there's this guy in the house named Joe Viscusi. We're not so sure about his brand of leadership, and we'd rather encourage that you run for, why don't you think about running for that seat? Mm -hmm. So I did, and I made the decision to run. Now, Joe was an incumbent Democrat. I was a Democrat. But we had a third party in the race, Gene Roberts. Gene was somewhat of a perennial candidate. He had run like (laughs) eight times. Wow for office and he was a great businessman and he was well known in the community and well liked he was a also a, a key wester a conk and and did he ever win he never won wow. ever but what i realized then was and, and then we ran a strong campaign i came in second and then joe and i were in a runoff this was when we still had runoffs in the primary and what i realized is if you're if you're an incumbent and you don't get 50% in that first race, if you're in a runoff, you're probably going to lose. Hmm. Because that really says that 50% of the people don't think you should be reelected. So I was able to win in the in the Democratic primary. and then, But it was the Ross Perot years. That was 1992. It was mm-hmm. Ross Perot years, and it was a throw the rascals out. And so highest voter turnout ever in Polk County. It was like 80% voter turnout. Wow. It was crazy so 
all the polls were showing, my polls were showing me up about 16 percentage points a week before the election. Hmm. Republican polls were showing me up about 14 or 15 percent. So I felt, and I had kind of gotten word back on that. So I felt pretty good going into the race. But what I learned about polls is that polls poll the most likely to vote. Well, <laughs> and the most likely to vote is con, is by past performance. Right. But in the throw the rascals out year of Ross Perot, that attracted so many people that weren't most likely to vote. Hmm. They were people that came out to vote. So there's about almost a 20% pickup of those folks that were never polled. Wow. We never sampled their opinions because we didn't expect them to come and vote. Sure. Right? So I won by five votes, as wow. it turned out, five votes. And we had 10 days' worth of recounts. We had six recounts, including a hand recount. Did the, did the number ever change in there from the Oh, five? my gosh. It changed. Oh, yes, a number of times. In, in fact, Brett, I went to bed that night. I remember calling my guy that was running my campaign. He was at the elections office. I was at our election party. And he said, Dean, I, I mean, I, I don't know how to tell you, but I'm so sorry, but you lost by 220 votes or something like that. Wow. So I'm like, okay. So I called my opponent, congratulated her, and I thanked everybody for, for their help and support and their friendship. And my wife and I sat and we talked and said, you know, what an enriching experience this has been for us. Really, we've gotten to meet so many great people, uh, got to learn a lot. Uh, this has really been an enriching experience for us. And you know what? The sun's going to rise in the morning. We're going to be fine. This is not, you know, not the end of the world. Sure. Disappointing when you've worked so hard not to win. But so we're home in bed, literally, my, I'm falling back on the pillow when the phone rings it's about two thirty or three o'clock in the morning wow and it's bill rufty now bill rufty was a reporter local political reporter for the lakeland ledger and he said dean hey this is bill i'm just what do you think about the election and the and i said bill i lost i mean what do you <laughs> what did you think i, I mean i'm disappointed yeah. I, I lo- he said oh you hadn't heard I said, no, what are you talking about? He said, well, they had a snafu at the elections office. The, uh, they double counted the absentee ballots. And when they backed those out, you're now winning by like 21 votes. But they still haven't counted the military absentee ballots. So those have got to be opened up, and there's about 100 of those. Mm-hmm. Well, I did that quick math. I said, okay, well, there's 100, and there's four districts in Polk County. There's probably going to be 25 or 30 of those ballots. They'll probably go more to Republicans because it's military mm-hmm. and I'll probably still be ahead. If I'm only ahead by 21 votes, I'll probably lose about half that. And sure enough, when we counted them, I was up 11 votes. Mm. Then we did some machine recounts and whatnot. It, 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 it varied. And, um, so we went from 11 to seven. Then we went into the canvassing board meeting and the canvassing board said, Hey, we got a problem. We were, canvassing the election, which is just a reconciling of ballots given to ballots voted. And we realized we were five ballots too many, or five ballots short. And so when they explained it, what had happened was one of the precincts 
ran out of ballots. The demand in the voter turnout was so high, they ran out of ballots. And so, and they did not have time to drive to the elections office and get more ballots and get back by the time the polls would close. Mm. So they took some absentee ballots and had the people fill out absentee ballots. And there were five of those ballots. And they marked them and put them in a special box and put a note on it. And so when we went to the the canvassing board's meeting, the first thing was, well, how should we handle these five ballots? Mm-hmm. So they so bravely asked the candidates what we thought. And I said, well, listen, wh- whether I win or lose doesn't matter as much as the integrity of the election. And, uh, and if they look like they are, I, I understand the explanation. I mean, it was an extraordinary voter turnout. Mm-hmm. They look like, those are properly cast ballots, then we should count them, absolutely, Whatever, however it turns out. My opponent didn't think so. She thought we shouldn't count them. Hmm. And I think they broke three votes my way, two votes her way, so I net gain a one. But then she was demanding a hand recount. So we went in and I said, fine. I mean, again, the importance is sure. that the election results, the people's voice should be heard, count them by hand. Well, what I didn't realize at the time, because we had a you know fill in the bubble ballot, mm-hmm. um, so we didn't have hanging chads like we later had in two thousand, right? But because we didn't have those kind of voting machines. But what I didn't realize at the time was that there are ballots that are not counted because people fill out the ballots incorrectly. They bring a pin in, and they fill it out with pin, which isn't read by the computers. Or they put an X or they circle or they make other marks on the election ballot, but the, but they're not counted by the computers. Mm-hmm. And so the hand count and the computer count reconciled was the same. And now we come to the 25 or 30 ballots that were rejected by the machines. And the canvassing board was then charged with determining the will of the voter. And they literally went through all these ballots. And, and so it... You know, Saunders, Breidenbach, mm. Breidenbach, Saunders, Breidenbach, 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 Saunders, Saunders, you know, mm-hmm. back and forth. And there was not a single ballot I disagreed with until the very last one. And I knew at that point I'd won mm. because I knew there was no way the canvassing board would allow that ballot to be counted for my opponent if it made a difference in the race. And you could tell where somebody had put their mark like they were thinking they were going to vote for my opponent, Mm -hmm. but then they lifted their pencil up. And you could tell because their other ballots were bubbled in, right? But on that one, they decided not to vote. Hmm. They abstained. But they called it for my opponent. And I figured, you know what, I must have won because there's no way they would let that, because it was clear they didn't intend to vote, in my opinion. And I won by five votes. So, wow. and I think I, I, I think my opponent talked to me maybe eight years later. She never, she walked out, went to North Carolina, and I never heard from her. Wow. Eight, you know, she never spoke to me for eight years. Okay, so, I mean, obviously that, that requires the follow-up of, what was that conversation like eight years later? I can't even remember. <laughs> yeah, I, don't really, I don't really care. All good, all good. So we're, uh, you know, we're into metaphorical skin of our teeth territory on getting into office. Did it, 
did it work out easier the second time? These things usually are easier, I would assume, for an incumbent, but you, you served two terms. Did the second one go a little bit easier? Yeah, it was it was easier. It was interesting that that my, the Democrat I had defeated in the in the primary race, uh, Joe Viscusi, changed parties hmm. and ran as a Republican uh, and challenged me as a Republican. But, interesting. But yes, I, I I won. And so you didn't you didn't spend a lot of time in the legislature, but you spent enough time dealing with public policy for years. By that point, you're still a really young guy. What, how how old were you when you first? got elected office. It was 32. 32, yeah. Super young, but you'd already been around these issues for a long time. And so you, it seems like you made really good use of the time that you had in the legislature. And I want to talk, I want you to talk a little bit about that in particular, uh, because this is largely a water and environmental podcast. The, the idea of conservation easements and the expansion of their use, you were, you were, instrumental in that happening tell me about that process so yeah so you know it's funny brett back when i was 24 years old and i was working for lawton newly married and i can remember specifically driving from orlando to claremont i'm not sure why my wife and i were in orlando but we were coming back to claremont to go to my parents this was in 1984 so this was after that 81 freeze, which had been devastating to Lake County, but then the 83 freeze, the freeze of Christmas of 1983, which coincidentally was also the week, the first night we spent in our new home in Lakeland Hmm. was the freeze night, and the heater didn't work. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but, But so here we are in 1984, and I'm driving back in it looks like something you would see out of a dystopian novel. Just dead, gnarly orange trees everywhere. Wow. You know, because that drive was used to be so pretty, you know, rolling hills and oh, just yeah. nothing but orange trees and lakes. And, you know, we were called the Gem of the Hills. Claremont's little mantra was Gem of the Hills. That was our little thing. So, so I remember saying to my wife, I said, you know, this will all be houses one day. Hmm. And I'm going to hate that. I said, you know, I wonder, I wonder if we could pay landowners not to develop their land. So, hence, the idea of the conservation easements at mm. the time was born out of that. Mm. And so, when I went to work for the Florida Farm Bureau, between my stints with Lawton, uh, and when he was in the Senate, I started doing some research on the transfer of development rights, because that was being used as part of the new growth management legislation that the state had enacted in 1985, and now the counties are having to do their comprehensive planning, and all that has to get approved by the state. Mm-hmm. Well, I started seeing transfer of development rights showing up as a way to offer a landowner a token really like oh well we're going to allow you to transfer your development right somewhere so i started really researching that concept Mm -hmm. and i found where there were some counties in new england but by the way transfer development rights almost never works because you have to have government has to create a sending zone and a receiving zone and it requires the government to create the market and that's just something governments are terrible at and so they really don't work was the conclusion I came to. Mm-hmm. But I also discovered that there were some counties in New England 
Suffolk County and New York being one of them, that created purchase of development rights programs. I thought, oh my gosh, this is it. I mean, where the government's actually buying the rights to develop the land. And in Suffolk County, they were concerned about potato farmers. They wanted to continue to make sure they had people farming potatoes. Wow. And so... That's Long Island, right? Suffolk County? Long, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Potato yeah. farmers on Long Island. Correct. And so I started calling some of those counties, and I would talk to the people that administering the programs. Oh, yeah, this is how it works and whatnot. So I really had, you know... I dove into it and really understood it. And so I said, I went to President of Farm Bureau at the time, Carl Loop. I tried to pitch this idea. This is a great idea. You know, this is a way to protect ag land, but still, in, but still protect the integrity of private property rights. Mm-hmm. So it's conserved, but the landowner gets to enjoy some of the appreciated value that he's giving up to not develop the property. Mm-hmm. What was the what was that initial reaction the first time you came back to Florida? You did all this research. You're talking to these folks. You see that that, that there's something there. When you first said it out loud to someone, what was the initial reaction that you got? Skepticism, you know. But you know, I was so enthusiastic about it. I remember when I talked to Carl, he was like, "Well, you know that that sounds interesting, Dean." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I right, mean, right. and and so now, so fast forward. To 1990, and I'm working for Lawton, but also on the ballot in 1990 was the constitutional amendment to create the Preservation 2000 program, Hmm. which was an investment where the voters of this state said, we want the state to make an investment in our green infrastructure. We want them to protect some of our land. And Hmm. so the concept was to spend $300 million a year to bond that money because the interest payments on the bond would be less than the appreciated value of the property. And so let's buy land now and we'll pay for it as we go. Mm -hmm. And we'll pay for it from the documentary stamp tax, which was a beautiful nexus because it was as real estate gets sold, houses get sold, part of that money goes for the doc stamps. We'll use that money to pay back the bonds. Mm -hmm. So it was a great nexus. So suddenly now the state is buying a lot of conservation land. So here we go, 1993, and I'm like, you know, I had this idea when I was in the legislature. I mean, when I, when I was a kid at age 24, I had tried to talk to the governor about it. I talked to the lieutenant governor, Buddy McKay, about it. I talked to Carol Browner, who had been the head of, the Department of Environmental Protection. I said, guys, this is a way we can make our dollars stretch further. We don't have to pay as much. We don't have to pay to manage the land. This is a great concept, and it protects the integrity of property rights. And, you know, they just weren't, they didn't They didn't disagree with me. It just was not a priority for any of them. Did they also think that it wouldn't work, that, that landowners wouldn't be interested? Or was it was it really just, hey, we don't know how, that, how, to, how to make that function? I just I just don't think it was a particular priority. It wasn't like, oh, we're against that idea. Right. It was just we've got so many other priorities and things that we're focusing on, we're not going to really worry about that. So when I got elected to the legislature, I said, you know what? I had this crazy idea, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can't make it a reality. So 
I called the director of the Division of State Lands at the time, was Pete Mallison, and I asked him about it. And he said, well, Dean, he said, um, that is an interesting concept. He said, it's one I think could work. He said, um, and I said, well, Pete, I would, if I were to do this, how, how would you recommend we go about doing it? He said, well, I would find an area and let's see if we can make it work. Take a geographic area and let's set aside some money to do that only in that geographic area. And let's test the efficacy of this before we go try to do it statewide. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. So I crafted some legislation to to do just that, to buy development rights. And that's what we called it, purchase of development rights. Mm -hmm. So following on Pete's suggestion, I I said, you know, the Green Swamp area of critical state concern is about 320,000 acres area in Polk and Lake County. It was already designated an area of critical state concern, so it was already considered an important geography to protect. It was large enough in acreage that we would have, we could test the efficacy of the program because we'd have enough landowners to pull from mm. to see if they had an interest. And so, right. But I also know landowners were skeptical of the water management districts. They didn't trust Swift Mud. They didn't trust St. John's. They darn sure didn't trust DEP or the Department of Community Affairs because remember, this was right after growth management got passed and landowners were feeling the impact of what they considered to be down zoning on their properties mm-hmm. where they might have had one unit to one acre that they could develop on their property. Now they went from one unit to five acres or one unit to 10 acres or one unit to 20 acres. Wow. And in the green swamp, they were talking about making them go to one unit to 20 acres because anything in the green swamp area of critical state concern, not only did the counties have to agree to, but the state got a say-so in that as well, and not just through comprehensive planning, but because it was in an area of critical state concern. Mm. So the state was really holding their feet to the fire. All that to say, Brett, that it really created an increased distrust of any of those state agencies. So I said, if this idea is going to have any merit, it's got to be a separate independent body. So... I wrote it so that it would be a separate independent body, that Polk County would get three appointees by their county commission, could appoint three people, Lake County could appoint three people, and the governor could appoint three people. We'd have nine members, and then, so that way we'd have an odd vote, but they would be charged with hiring an executive director and coming up with their own rules and implementing the plan. And we took $10 million a year, Ultimately, it came from the Preservation 2000 monies, but little different pots. There were separate money set aside for areas of critical state concern. They got a little bit, so I took some of that from here and there, and we came up with $10 million a year, so $30 million over a three-year period was how we did it. And um, and I never forget when when I introduced it, you know, the government guys didn't like it. They didn't like the idea of only buying an easement or a stopping just the development they wanted to buy all of the property and they just thought i was a fascist in that regard that's how i say it and the landowners thought i was a communist um and so but most of them knew because of all my background and history with them they knew well you know dean's one of us and i had been active in the burt harris private property rights protection bill i was one of the prime people behind all that to 
protect private property rights. So, yeah, I had a lot of credibility with the landowners. And so they were skeptical as well. Hmm. Um, so that would, I'd say it was met with skepticism on both sides. Hmm. But I've always felt like the landowners and the agriculturalists had a lot more in common with the environmental community than either one of them would acknowledge. And I thought, you know, if you buy the development rights, that's where the integrity of private property rights meets the protection of land. It meets mm-hmm. conservation. You're paying the landowner to give up the right to develop the property. All right, let's pause for a moment to talk about my friends at Sea and Shoreline. As we in Florida wonder what the future holds when we face the storm season ahead, Sea and Shoreline is working to protect our coastline communities against severe storms by installing a variety of green and gray infrastructure solutions to make our cities and counties more resilient. These solutions include seagrass restoration, mangroves, oyster reefs, riprap, oyster breakwaters, and something called a WAD, which stands for Wave Attenuation Device. By installing their patented WADs, Sea and Shoreline can help protect our communities against sea level rise and storm surges by diffusing wave energy, stopping shoreline erosion, and even rebuilding shorelines through sand accretion. To learn more about how Sea and Shoreline can protect your community, visit seaandshoreline.com. All right, let's get back to the conversation. You mentioned the the landowners. What was the reaction initially from the environmental community at that time? Uh, again, everybody Same. everybody was a little <laughs> skeptical, you know, and it depended on where you kind of came from. Mm. You know, some of the environmental organizations, the Nature Conservancy, and you had mentioned earlier, Brett, the gentleman Eric Draper. Eric and I were were good friends. Mm. He didn't really understand the agriculture community, and I always kind of considered it one of my jobs to educate people mm-hmm. about agriculture and in and in adv- being an advocate for how farmers felt and ranchers felt about their land. Mm-hmm. And I knew the deep love and attachment they had. And it, and and honestly, the state only has the right to argue about protecting that land because these people have protected it for all these years that they haven't developed it. Right. So right. so let's respect and honor that. And so folks from different walks of life, but in, in this one area where we could conserve property, we really did have a meeting of the mind, so to speak, mm-hmm. even if people were distrustful of the other, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'd earlier mentioned to you that I'd sponsored it in, in the House, but my sponsor in the Senate was happy to sponsor it because I it, it sort of begged him to sponsor it, but he suggested that I needed to be the one to come carry the load and push it through the Senate, which I did. And when I went to the Natural Resource Committee to uh, to present the bill, the Florida Farm Bureau was the lobbyist was on my right side in support of the legislation, and the Audubon Society lobbyist Charles Lee was on my left appropriate sure position sure, right um, but they both spoke in strong favor mm. of what we were doing and so so it became law we had a big bill signing ceremony here down in the green swamp mm. the governor came in and it just enjoyed all kinds of success people loved it landowners liked it they were receptive to it do you remember the first the, the first easement that you executed or that that was executed by the state or that I, I guess that organization. There was a group. So in the first batch we did, I think there were nine that got done. Okay. And they were called land protection agreements. And at the time, we, we were not using the term conservation easement. We're, it was 
purchase the development rights, hmm. and it was called a land protection agreement. Okay. Later down the road, the name got changed to purchase of a conservation hmm. easement. And I remember people came to me and said, yeah, you know, we think it sounds a little more politically correct to call this purchase a development right. I mean, a conservation easement. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't really care what you call it. <laughs> right. As long as the landowner is remunerated and, and compensated mm-hmm. for the rights he gives up in his land. Right. And this can take a lots of different angles. So that's kind of how that, that got borne out. And I do remember, you know, you asked me how people responded. My my biggest proponent, really, in this was Fritz Musselman. So Fritz mm-hmm. was a land acquisition director for the Southwest Florida Water Management Fritz. District. Yeah. Fritz hated this idea and the concept of buying development rights. He hated it. And he tried to undermine me everywhere I went. He went to the St. Pete Times, I remember, and got them to write a scathing editorial opposing it. And then later, it was the best idea Fritz had ever had. Sure. You know, after we got a pass, <laughs> after we'd had success, uh, then Swift Mud started using it and doing, they probably did more easements than anybody else. And Fritz was at the head of all that. So, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you just got to have to prove it to people. Sure. Because um, Fritz would be a late convert. Right. Or was a later convert, but he later used it extensively uh, to protect a lot of land. And we talked about it before. It's like from, from my end being... At the Northwest Florida Water Management District, it was a huge tool for us to be able to to use to get that same protection that you were after, that the environmental community is after, while while making sure that we're respecting someone's property rights and making sure that they're properly compensated for for giving up those rights that they had before. Right, and you know, and from your perspective, you got to almost double the amount of land you could protect with the same amount of money. That's exactly right. And you didn't have the long-term commitments to managing the obligate. You didn't have the obligation to manage the land and pay for it. And it still stayed on the tax rolls yeah. and still stimulated the economy in some form or fashion. Right. It's like, because if, if someone is using it to end up Northwest is more likely to be growing timber, it's still something that's part of the economy still. And you're exactly right. That was a big that's a big thing, especially in some of the smaller districts, but it's not unusual for these larger ones. It costs money to manage hundreds of thousands of acres of land. And so I think what you you open a door that that made it a lot easier for us to be able to manage that in the in the long run. And that's a that's a huge deal. Yeah. And it was so I remember the day because I'm sure at some point you, you want to know about my transition mm-hmm. out when I literally the day my announcement that I was not going to run for the legislature was in the paper. I had a local rancher call me, Charlie Mac Overstreet, call me up. He said, Dean, you know, I thought you were crazy as a sprayed roach with your <laughs> conservation legislation, but you know what? And he said, but I didn't want to be critical because you're my friend and you've been my friend a long time. But, you know, I've been thinking about this. And I think this is something that could help me. Why don't you come out here and visit with me and Betty Kay? That was his wife. Mm-hmm. I think I want to hire you to help me get this done. I thought, oh, okay. Well, if Charlie Mack needs help, there may be other landowners that need help doing this. And I'm a big believer in it. You know, I, I, so if you, if you really peel me back, mm-hmm. you know, I'm an agriculturalist and I'm a real estate broker. You know, you cannot be either one of those without a strong sense of the protection of private property rights. 
They're sacrosanct to me. Now, you can't put a nuclear waste dump everywhere on, on your property, right? right? I mean, there has to be some regulation of what you do, and that's why we have zoning laws. That's why we have growth management. That's why we have some of the things that we have in place mm-hmm. to protect against obnoxious uses. But But you cannot come from either one of those facets of life, and I came from both of them, mm-hmm. and not have a strong sense of private property rights. Sure. So, you know, if a man owns a piece of land and there's development pressure and he wants to develop it and he can and there's demand, you know, God bless him. Mm-hmm. That's his right. But I'm an eighth-generation Floridian, and, you know, I love Florida 18 million people ago, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but I can't change the fact that they're here. Mm-hmm. And so, but... But we can try to protect some of what's here for it not to be developed. As long as we can do it in a way that protects the integrity of property rights. Sure. It doesn't trample on that. So when he mentioned that to me and I thought, you know, this would be something that maybe I could go pitch and, and talk to other landowners about. Sure. I understand it. I wrote the legislation, but I believe in it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm passionate about it and I get to protect land. And so I started doing a lot of that work, and I've done it ever since. And I've had the privilege of doing probably close to 100 deals, you know, with government and, and representing landowners and protecting land from from being developed. It ends up becoming uh, your your long term, make a career of uh, the pancake dinner from from being a kid. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so. exactly. Tell me about a couple, maybe you know, or maybe one. It's like I know the one that's most recent, which was the the Bluffs property at uh, St. Teresa up in Northwest Florida. But tell me, tell me one of those is that maybe you're the most proud of, right? Or at least is significant in your mind in terms of bringing folks together because that's what you're doing in the end is is bringing landowners and in this in this case government together sometimes a pri- like the nature conservancy is involved and you and you make that happen tell me about that process a little bit you know i approach this as a understanding of working with a buyer and a seller i view my job is to really understand both parties needs and if i can meet two parties needs that's where we make a deal hmm. it's not always the highest and best price it's beating needs and so I focus my whole real estate practice, and I encourage my associates to let's really understand the buyer's needs. Let's understand the seller's needs, because where we get them to meet is where we get paid, mm. where we make a deal. Right. Okay. Right. So the state or any conservation group, and I've done deals with the counties. I've done deals with all the water management districts. I've done deals with the USDA. I've done deals with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I've done deals with the state of Florida. Uh, Florida Department of Agriculture. So, you know, there's so many iterations now of this concept. Mm-hmm. Because when I did it, USDA wasn't buying conservation easements. They started that with the 1996 Farm Bill. Hmm. They started buying wetland reserve easements. So these things have just evolved, and they're different tools. And, you know, some of the counties now are doing them. The water management districts have done them. Sure. So there's different iterations and different goals and objectives. And so I try to understand the goals and objectives. Like USDA's, the Wetlands Reserve Easement, is to restore wetlands that might have been damaged or destroyed to for farming, mm-hmm. for agricultural purposes. And so one of the larger ones I did at the time represented Bluehead Ranch and the Westby Corporation, along with... Mr. Carlton, mm-hmm. and we protected 25,000 acres of land at the headwaters of Fish Eating Creek. 
And that was a huge project. It was the largest conservation easement that USDA had ever done. It, it involved three landowners. And I remember going, we spent quite a bit of time in Washington. It was during the Obama administration, and they had a little different angle. And I was saying, rather than doing one-offs, protecting 500 acres here, or 1,000 acres there, and 100 acres over here, why don't we look at a watershed? I said, here's a phenomenal watershed, and we can restore it. We got three landowners primarily mm-hmm. to deal with. And Fish Eating Creek is a natural course that runs into Lake Okeechobee. We want to clean up Lake Okeechobee, then let's protect it. And here is a way to make sure that happens. Mm. So that's an example of one I did. And you mentioned the Bluffs of St. Teresa, which is a 17,000-acre track on in St. James Island. We called it the Bluffs of St. Teresa because it was a marketing name. Right. And as you know, Brad, I sold the Latter-day Saints, the company they called Ag Reserves, bought about 382,000 acres from St. Joe Timber Company back in 2014, we closed on the deal, but mm-hmm. some of that land was surplus. And this 17,000-acre track on the Gulf of Mexico with over 25 miles of waterfront on it because it fronted on Oclockney Bay and on mm-hmm. Alligator you know, Alligator Point and uh, you know, the, the bay there on the Gulf of Mexico. So in, they hired me to sell that for them because mm-hmm. it, it didn't serve their purpose. Right. Uh, but it was I – mean, when I saw it, I thought, oh, my gosh, this – this would be such a phenomenal piece to have in conservation. The mm-hmm. state really should try to own this. So it, it took a while, and we tried it one time and weren't able to get there. <laughs> and we figured out a way to get it done, and we, and we made it happen. And, uh, yeah, and I'm real proud of that. Is that, that property really should have been in yeah, public ownership. It, it is special, and, and it, it, it seems to me, it's like you tell me where, where I may be missing this a little bit, but... But it is seeing those kinds of opportunities and be able to work with someone like Ag Reserves, who has who is now I think the largest private landowner. They're the largest private landowner in the state of Florida. They could have easily done whatever they wish, but they're a cattle company, and at least that that segment of their uh, of their operations is is cattle. And so, seeing is that part of of the experience that you built over over decades of seeing an opportunity where someone else may be like, ah, oh, well, don't, don't know exactly how to approach that with these folks. You know, it, yeah, I mean, it does come from having that experience, and, but really it comes from just being comfortable enough in my own skin to ask the questions, hmm. you know, and to start being so bold as to offer some suggestions. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? You know, we could do this, position it here, position it there. And I I really enjoy working with sellers and helping them accomplish their goals. And sometimes it's it's not a straight line. I mean, I, and so in the conservation arena, these deals oftentimes take so long to get done. Sometimes it can happen quickly, but normally it takes years to get them done. And you know, there was a period after the Great Recession when the state didn't have a lot of money and they weren't investing a lot of money in their green infrastructure. And so to get deals done, we had to be very creative. I did a lot of deals with USDA, but we also, I got the Florida Department of Agriculture and USDA together. And I said, guys, why don't, why don't y'all partner? You've got a couple different programs. Why don't you partner on some of these programs? And neither one's carrying the main load. So I was able to get a lot of my 
deals done by just being creative and thinking out of the box. I did one deal where I sold a conservation easement to USDA, Wetlands Reserve Easement. And, you know, my landowner wanted to sell the property, but I didn't have any particular buyers because at the time, it was right after or during the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. There were no private buyers. People weren't buying. I mean, they just weren't doing anything. They didn't have the money to do it. So we did an easement with USDA, Wetlands Reserve Easement, and then I sold the underlying fee value once we sold the easement to Polk County and to Swift Mud in partnership. Hmm. So they partnered and bought the underlying fee. So that was one of my more creative deals where it involved three units of government, Water yeah. Management District, United States Department of Agriculture, and Polk County. Yeah, interesting. Your folks have described you, or you've described yourself to your folks at least, or as a recovering politician. I'm going to ask you to take one last look back into that life. Is there something that if somebody made you go back to do it again, that you wish you had had done while you were still there or something that you see over the years that that you've been out that you might like to go back and, and fix? Oh, man. I mean, you know, there's always things you see. But, you know, I don't have any real regrets of what I've done. I mean, I... In, in addition to the conservation easement legislation, I was also created the Bright Futures. Right. Which uh, is authored the legislation that created Bright Futures and authorized its existence. It didn't get funded until after I was out. <laughs> the year after I was out, it got funded. But, I think as a piece of policy, though, and speaking as as a parent, I know there are a lot of parents out there that are, that are uh, listening to this as well. You know, you're part of sending my oldest to college. Uh, I've got two younger ones that will continue to take their SATs and uh, you know, however many times it takes to and do their volunteer work to to qualify for Bright Futures. It's a it's been a huge part of a lot of people's families, it, it, and it's and it stood the test of time, which I think is uh, is important right. as well. You got to be proud of that. Uh, uh, both of those things are uh, I'm incredibly proud of. Honestly, the Bright Futures has kept. But it did what we meant it to do. Hmm. Keep our talent one of the one of the goals, right? Keep people in Florida. Mm-hmm. Keep them going to Florida schools. And so the demand for schools in Florida is a lot higher as a result. But guess what? We keep a lot of those people here mm-hmm. and keep our talent in the state of Florida. Yeah, I think it's a a, a, a huge innovative piece of public policy. Um, and so uh, well done and, there. And, you know, that was one of those things, Brett, when I did it, that was some real heavy lifting. I mean, I had to work that thing in the House. And then my Senate sponsor at the time was in the doghouse with the Senate president. Mm. And every single one of his bills had six committee references. Ouch. Which, as you know, as your time in the legislature, was the kiss of death. Yeah. Because committee meet about four weeks and if you got six committee assignments there's no way to get through all those committees so i was able to go and convince don sullivan who was senate mm-hmm. he was chairman of the education committee in in the senate and i said don you know i've got the answer to the lottery you know because everywhere we went people would complain to us about the lottery and so we were all feeling that you know people were saying well it was a flim flam you promised us educational enhancement but you're just really filling budget holes with this money Mm -hmm. you're not really using it the way you said you were going to use it blah 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 
So I spent some t- I spent about an hour in Don's office pitching him on this idea that this is a this is an answer to the lottery. And what a great way we could do it. And, and we patterned it after the Hope Scholarship from Georgia. And so after I, you know, got talking to him and he said, you know what, Dean? I think you're really onto something. Hmm. I think you're right. He said, i tell you what I'm going to do. He said, I'm going to take the bill and I'll make it a committee bill. He said, I'll take it from the member and we'll make it a committee bill. So we did wow. and we got it, got it passed in the House and the Senate. And then I've got the governor. And so he didn't like it. <laughs> and so one of the things I knew about the governor, Governor Childs, mm-hmm. was that he didn't like entitlements. And he was really concerned about tying the hands of the legislature, future legislatures. But I kind of thought that was the beauty of it, right? It kind of did tie it because I knew it would be so popular that they'd have to continue to fund it. Right. And... um so he came in town and he was signing it and and I and I knew he had a concern and was thinking about vetoing it and mm-hmm. I begged him please don't veto this don't please mm-hmm. and he didn't he didn't veto it but he also didn't sign it he let oh. it become law without his signature wow and I think the only reason he did was because it was me asking sure. the next year of course was the big fanfare now that Everybody's funding it, and right. uh, and it just so happened providentially I was in town and was able to attend the bill signing ceremony. And Ken Pruitt, who was one of my good friends, mm-hmm. he said, "Dean, you come get in this picture with us because we wouldn't be here if you hadn't done this legislation." Wow! So the governor signed it and handed me the pen. Hmm. That's really cool. Even though I wasn't in the legislature at the time. If you'll uh, if you'll indulge me, we go into uh, sort of a I want to call it a lightning round, but it's more of a you know, wrote questions I ask everybody just to kind of uh, to get their reaction. But I think it's uh, people seem to like it that that listen. So I'll ask you this. You spent your career preserving some of these, you know, unique special places in Florida. Are you optimistic about the environment in Florida? When you say the environment, you mean Meaning, uh, land, these natural systems, that, that yeah. sort of thing. So, so one of the things I, I am so grateful um, that our leadership and the, and the voters have said, look, green infrastructure is important to us. And honestly, you know, some policymakers have had different priorities of emphasis on that, mm-hmm. some more so than others. And certainly our current governor has had a very strong conservation ethic mm-hmm. and is very encouraging of protecting land. And this legislature is following in suit. And so they have appropriated quite a bit of money. And so I think we, Florida, is a model for how this can be done in other states and is a right thing to do for for development and, it, I mean, uh, for, for conservation. And so if you want to protect, you know, your quality of life in your state, here's a way to help do it. Yeah, I mean, look, we, we can always discuss issues. There are always things when you have... 20, almost 23 million people mm-hmm. living in a place, you, it's going to provide stresses and strains, and that, that sure. that's going to exist. Yeah, and that's the other. That's the that's the next question, which is: Is there something that keeps you up at night regarding that subject matter? And if so, you know, you know why? Well, you just got a lot of resources that get stressed. Water certainly is mm-hmm. is at the top of that stress. 
because we can't live without it. Right. And so, and there's a lot of demand and competing, competing demand for those water resources and to keep water clean. I don't know that it keeps me up at night, but I know those are <laughs> important considerations. And some of that stuff's above my head, you know, above my pay grade, because I'm not in public policy anymore. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I am a reformed politician, so I don't mind talking. But I do get to participate and work with landowners, and I can do my fair share in helping protect this place by not by reducing some of the stress on some of the land, mm-hmm. right, by helping do the conservation easements that sure. I've been able to to help do right and that's a, and that's enormous i think uh i think i i would agree in that you are in fact doing your part what advice would you give to young people that are thinking about whether it be in the public policy arena or in land brokerage in conservation easement deals what would you what would you say to them in terms of getting you know getting into either of those things follow your dreams mm. chariots of fire in that movie and I, t- I tell my kids this you know eric little in the movie is seen you know he's a he's a missionary his family missionary family and of course he's a famous olympic athlete mm-hmm. chooses not to run on sunday and then later runs in a relay race and england wins and you know it's one of those things but mm-hmm. it's but in the movie it shows his sister saying to him eric i just wish you would get this over and that you would get back on the mission field and doing God's work and mm-hmm. on the mission field. And he said, yeah, but, but I feel this pleasure when I run. <laughs> he made me, he made me fast too. And I feel this pleasure when I run. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've told my kids, I want you to do where you feel this pleasure and what you're doing. And we're, so where your passion, what do you, what do you like doing? Pursue that. But pursue whatever you do with excellence. We're made in his image Mm. to be excellent at whatever we do. So do that. Pursue whatever it is that you're passionate about. Be really good at it Mm. and focus on it. That's great. If folks want to know more about what you do and how you may be able to help them, you know, in general and more specifically with here at the um, at your uh, brokerage, how can they get hold of you? And call us, 863-648-1528, or email me at dean at svn.com. There you go. You heard it, folks. And I'll put the website in our episode notes so they can uh, find you there as well as the email address. And, and other things about what we talked today, We could I could go on for hours with you. But, Dean Saunders, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brett. Enjoyed it. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to Water for Fighting. This podcast has been brought to you by Rez and CN Shoreline. Don't forget to check the episode notes to visit their websites and learn more about how they can help you. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use. And don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. You can follow the show on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, probably even Twitter at FLWaterPod. And you can reach me directly at FLWaterPod at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Sworn for making the best of what he had to work with and to Dave Barfield for the amazing graphics and technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bo Spring from the Bo Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for the podcast. The song is called Doing Work for Free and you should check out the band live or wherever great music is sold. Join me next time for another amazing conversation with someone who has helped shape water and environmental policy in the Sunshine State. Until then, 
keep your whiskey close and your water closer.